Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Trey Lacharte. Trey is currently a hospitalist and medical director for clinical documentation integrity at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville. He trained at the University of Kentucky and the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville and St. Louis University. He has dedicated time to the fields of medical coding and billing, medical education, and mentorship. Today, Dr. Lacharte will let us know how his medical career and personal life has influenced his perception of mortality and vice versa. Trey, welcome. It's great to have you. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thanks, Matt. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, well, like you said, I am a hospitalist and uh, I only work on the teaching service. Um, as you know, we run a 15 bed unit and we always try to keep it full every day. Uh, that's about a third of my time. The other two thirds of my time is all administrative related to clinical documentation, but I also have responsibilities in UR case management, compliance, performance improvement, those kinds of things. All the fun things that the bean counters like to keep the hospital going, right? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm the only guy who uh, forgets to take a step back when they ask for volunteers. <laughs> yeah. Learning to say no early in your career, folks, is an important skill. Absolutely. Um, do you remember the first time you experienced death or loss or grieving? Um, well, I guess it was, you know, probably around the loss of some of our uh, pets as a child. I didn't really lose my first significant human until my grandfather died when I was just about ready to graduate college. So, and when he passed, it was not unexpected and it was really a blessing because his dementia was so bad. You know, the person I knew was long gone. Yeah. The, one of my grandparents passed from dementia as well. And that experience is really like losing the same person two times. I would agree. I would agree, but it's still a blessing if they've, you know, lost all of what made them them at that time. Definitely. And it's, it's easier on everybody who's involved in the caretaking when the physical death takes place. And in most cases, it's years after the spiritual slash mental slash personal death has occurred. Agreed. Do you remember, I mean, I guess college age probably had some skills around these topics, but do you remember any like visceral feeling of panic or peace or any of the above or anything in between? I think at the time I probably experienced peace because he had been uh, so bad off for so long. Um, you know, we're talking about the guy who taught me how to hunt fish, use a gun, uh, all these different kinds of things. He was a great outdoorsman. And for the last, you know, five or six years, he was just a shell. Um, mm -hmm. So what I think it was peace. That's good. And that's, it's totally fair. And for those of you out there, whatever your reaction is to that situation is totally validated too. 
do did you find a reliable I don't know, mentor or hobby, or did you spend more time outside and in order to replace that loss? No, I think I had, because he had been gone for so long and I guess I had sort of already compartmentalized the situation and uh, tried to move on. You know, I, I would go see him once a month, but it was, it was painful to do that and a struggle to get there. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't think I did anything differently other than just, you know, experiencing relief probably. And what was it that kept you going, even though there was pain involved? Um, probably some sense of obligation and, uh, my mother was probably on my rear end, uh, <laughs> constantly. So, you know, and if mama ain't happy, nobody happy. So, well, I try to be realistic, not, you know, no two patients are the same as, you know, some know it's coming and are willing to accept it. Some refuse to acknowledge that it's coming. Some have no clue and you're trying to make the family and loved ones understand that, um, you know, the end is coming. Um, so I, I try to be very, very realistic. My approach has always been that when things are clearly going downhill and they're not salvageable, everybody seems to do better when there are no rose colored glasses, uh, on. Uh, so I try to be as realistic and, uh, you know, honest as humanly possible. And has that helped you think about your own mortality? Um, probably, uh, I've always considered myself a realist and, now that I'm over 50, I understand I'm on the backside of life. And uh, I will tell you, I have, you know, started to think about things a little more carefully, like when I climb on a ladder, mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would really not like to end up on the trauma service with a chest tube. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think it's made it more, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I know it's coming for me at some point. Um, and so babe, maybe I need to do the best I can to choose the death I want, if you will, as opposed to doing something stupid, like getting impaled on a fence post. Right. So aside from making those, sm those smaller adjustments and being aware of the ladder, the fence post, the car and the next lane over, do, do you fear death? No, I don't fear death. It's, I mean, it's coming, it's inevitable. Um, you know, uh, there's not much I'm going to be able to do at the time to stop it. Most likely, uh, all one can do is, you know, make reasonable decisions and choices that, uh, don't lead to an early demise. Some people aren't so lucky. You know, we always talk about in medicine to make ourselves feel better only bad things happen to good people. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they didn't, there wasn't anything they could do to prevent that malignancy or uh, something else like that. I mean, it's really hard to beat genetics. 
um, you've always got that going against you. So like I tell the residents all the time, you know, when you admit this really, really nice person and things are really, really bad and things are obviously not going to end well, that should just remind you everybody should go home and kick a puppy. Uh, <laughs> that way you decrease your niceness level and maybe uh, increase your survival. I don't know. Um, I remember but, you saying that on Ron's and I didn't put it all together at the time just because, you know, as a resident, you're busy. But that's okay. right. That's, that's why you said the kick the puppy thing. Okay, got it. Got there it. you go. There you go. Um, you mentioned hunting and fishing. How does that tie into this topic for you? Um, well, as you know, I do like to hunt and I am a firearms enthusiast and uh, it gives me a even greater respect for uh, firearms. Um, so I am, you know, even more doubly conscious about making sure something's not loaded the moment I pick it up and not pointing anything at someone, um, those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, because honestly, you know, with, with a firearm, it only takes one time and it's game over. So I think that's yeah. probably how it's helped me the most there. Is there any connection or, you know, spiritual experience that you have when you're out in nature? Um, I don't know if I would call it spiritual, but you know, there's the expression, uh, a bad day in the field is better than a good day at work. Uh, and there are times that, you know, I really do feel that way because nature is unblemished and I can sit there and appreciate it. And if I never see, uh, what I'm out there hunting for, that's okay. Cause I probably saw something else equally cool. Very cool. Well, Trey, you've, you've covered a lot of things in your medical career. I see on your CV that you were a doctoral candidate in behavioral ecology. Did that have any oh, yes. play with going to medicine or, or tell me oh, how you got uh, there? Cause that's a term that I don't know if most people are even familiar with behavioral ecology. Yeah. So, um, I briefly chased a PhD, uh, really more interested in animal behavior, um, which is sort of a component of behavioral ecology. And it's just trying to figure out why animals do what they do, whether it's foraging for food or hunting or dodging predators or mating or whatever. And while I was really, really intrigued with the topic and evolutionary biology and animal behavior and all these different things, um, it didn't take me too long to figure out that even if I were to become, you know, the genius of the behavioral ecology world, I would only be impacting a very small, um, equally eggheaded group of people. And I just didn't find that to be very satisfactory. Um, and I think, you know, in medicine, I probably make more of an impact in a month than I would have in an entire career as a, an academic professor in behavioral ecology. So that's part of how I got there. Um, 
I just, I felt the need to do more, if you will, for God, King and country. Sure. Yeah. When you learned about animal behaviors and patterns and things like that, was any of that applicable to humans? Like, I mean, I always think of hospitals as these perfect little microcosms, They're their own universe. Like everything happens in a hospital. People are born there. People die there. People eat there. People sleep there. You know, everything and everything else Yeah, um, it is. It, it's and and people who do not work in a hospital, I think, don't, uh, you know, have an appreciation for all the things that happen. Um, maybe my, I, I've always been interested in how hospitals operate, which is, I think, partly how I got involved in all these different things I do for my facility, um, and that may stem from, you know, studying a group of organisms and uh, how they adapt to their environment, stay in their environment, um, you know, occupy their particular niche, if you will. Um, so that may have some sort of impact because you're right. It is, it is its own little, uh, uh, microcosm like you called it you know uh, you've heard me refer to it as the pond um, so you, you've got to get along in the pond right if you want to survive so got to get along to get along there you go yeah so as a hospitalist for our audience can you kind of explain what the day-to-day -day is like and and how frequent or infrequent dealing with end of life care is so like i sort of alluded to earlier the day to day when i'm practicing we have a closed unit of 15 beds and we you know discharge anywhere from 1 to 6 or 7 depending on the day when the patient's medically stable to go home or go to a skilled nursing facility or passes. Um, and then we try to admit an equal number to keep the beds full. I think dealing with death and mortality is kind of a daily thing for us because a lot of what we do is first try to do no harm, but B, be realistic about you know, the anticipated outcome because not every situation is salvageable. So I, I think there are a lot of daily discussions about um, expectations and mortality and end of life care and code status and uh, all those sorts of things. It, I, it, it's a daily conversation at least once, I'm sure. Definitely. And in terms of like code status discussions and, and those types of things, how did you develop that skill? <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess I, I, to be completely honest, I saw a lot of those discussions in medical school and none of them went well. <laughs> Wow. I was singularly unimpressed. Uh, 
and I sort of, you know, made a pact with myself. That's not the way I was going to handle it. So I did spend some time in residency, you know, working on my shtick, if you will, when that topic needs to be addressed. And again, I try to approach it from a very realistic and honest standpoint. Um, you know, I, I can, you know, ma'am or sir, I could do all these things to you if you want. I can't guarantee an outcome. And if you do survive that event, then we have to talk about, you know, which machines you're going to want to stay on, if any, and these kinds of things. And uh, I, I seem to have much better luck just painting the picture as realistic as it is, because as you know, a code situation is a, is a brutal thing. Um, brutal is arguably the only word for it. Uh, yeah. It, and even if you get them back, <laughs> the outcome of getting them back might actually be worse and harder on the family. Um, so it, it's, um, uh, I, I think being very honest and open about, you know, Hey, I can do these things. We can do all these things if you want, but I don't think, you know, you've got to decide whether you want them and then we need to figure out if you think they'll even make a difference. So, so a series of black pearls as the yes. expression goes, um, yes. in medical school led you to refining and reconditioning how you were going to approach that. Yeah, I, I guess I found a lot of those conversations I witnessed in medical school to be very, uh, uh, I don't even know what's the right word, tangential, didn't get down to the nitty gritty. Yeah, they're very avoidant. And, and that's, yeah. that doesn't serve anyone any anything. And just to clarify for the listeners, so if, if somebody says, hey, this is a pearl, this is a pearl of knowledge, this means it's a good and simple tidbit to remember that's going to serve you well well on the other side there are black pearls and you want to remember those things too because whatever it is or was that someone did or said something that you want to remember so that you don't repeat it yourself and in in medical training there are a lot more black pearls than pearls so it seems yes and a, a smart person learns from the black pearls without having to commit the mistake themselves <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's why talking to your elders is, is very helpful there you go so i mean you've done so much work in the clinical documentation space what drew what drove you to that space so um i, I think the big thing was being trained in internal medicine, right? I already have a high degree of sphincter tone and <laughs> I, I like things to be laid out as honestly and completely as possible. And I got really, really tired of picking up charts from people who had been in the hospital for two or three weeks. And of course, this was on paper at the time. And absolutely nothing's written in the chart of any use, uh, particularly on a surgical service. Uh, and in a code situation, that is absolutely of no help. And so I think that's what started me down the path of let's put an honest and accurate representation of how sick this patient is through a realistic portrayal of the diseases they have, which 
is only better for everyone, particularly at 3 a.m. when the code is running. Um, and, you know, now that we're not on paper, things are much, much better with the electronic health record. Things have come a long way, but I, I think that's probably where it all started. Um, I just, you know, when, just like you did when I, when I was a resident, we ran the codes at night for the whole house, for everybody's patients. And, you know, it, it's so frustrating to try to pick up a chart and figure out what this patient has had, what procedures they've had, what do I need to be thinking about in my efforts to try to resuscitate and revive them? Mm. That's interesting. I, I was not thinking that that type of work was going to start with the clinical motivator, but that actually is reassuring in a way. Yeah, it's, it's not just about the money. <laughs> well, no, I didn't mean it like that either. I, I just I didn't expect like bedside and heat of the moment stuff to translate to um, did they document acute hypoxic respiratory? Failure? That's right. Yeah. No, yeah. it, 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 it really started with, okay, this patient's here. They've been on a surgical service for two weeks. They've had, they've been to the OR three times and I have no clue what the right. patient has. Right. I didn't know that they coded already. I didn't know that they have 40 years gangrene. I didn't know that their mortality was already 90% that kind of stuff. It, well, exactly. I didn't know they had coronary artery disease. They had a cabbage last year. You've been holding the aspirin and Plavix. I mean, you know, all, all these things. I didn't know they had COPD, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. Documentation drives everything from bedside interactions to billing ultimately. And without, absolutely without good documentation, no one, no one gets anything out of that either. So we're just pointing out all the potential failures of medical communication today. So there you, there go. you go. How long have you been teaching residents and what's the, the big, the big takeaway that you get from that most days, obviously that's going to vary on the group. Right. So I think I got into I've always enjoyed teaching. Both my parents were college professors and like to teach. And uh, I've always been someone, if I can show you something so that you don't have to waste time figuring it out yourself, uh, then I've done you a good service. I guess also, again, um, there was not a lot of teaching in medical school. It was mm. a lot of, uh, you'd get asked a question and if you didn't know the answer, it was, well, you need to go look that up. And, and that's an abdication in my opinion of your role as a teacher and mentor. So again, lots of black pearls. I didn't want to be that way. So I've always tried to teach as soon as I, you know, took over my first medicine team as a second year resident, you know, my focus was making sure the interns knew what was going on and they learned something and they got something out of it. And it's just progressed from there. So, uh, you know, even those few years I was, up, you know, at that other hospital doing a hospitalist work after a residency, I still came over to uh, UT and did teaching rounds once a month. So, uh, I've been doing it a long time, uh, just strictly doing my clinical work with the residents has been about the last eight and a half years. 
were you, I mean, you said your parents were professors. Were they particularly impactful teachers with you or were you just around that academic environment and it was by osmosis? Yeah, they were not particularly impactful for me. I think it was completely osmosis because, I mean, that's all they ever talked about sitting around the dinner table at night was work. Well, their work was teaching their classes and doing their scholarship and talking about, you know, departmental politics. And, you know, uh, I got this across to this student today or, you know, this student didn't seem to understand a word I was saying or you know, so I, I just think I grew up with that, you know, this is, this is, this is something people should look at to do. So. And your sister's a physician. And I think that's just interesting because you both ended up physicians coming from an academic family. How is your relationship with her in terms of just medicine? And then do you guys ever talk about mortality and her experiences? So I think both my sister and I got into medicine because, you know, both my parents were in uh, French studies and uh, the humanities. And I think the subject matter just did nothing but drive my sister and I away from that sort of thing. <laughs> and so we always gravitated towards math and science, particularly science. As far as uh, discussing mortality, uh, I mean, you know, we had, I guess, the usual discussions when my mother passed about five years ago. Um, uh, I imagine we will have more of those discussions as my father is 85. So, um, you know, it, it was, uh, and again, both of us being in, science were, you know, much more matter of fact as opposed to esoteric. So do you think that, be, do you have other siblings? I'm just as no, a side note. No, no. just one sister. So I can imagine, and you can tell me if this is wrong, but since you're both doctors, these end of life discussions around family members probably go a lot more smoothly than just a random family that's in the ICU or on the hospital ward who's not so attuned to dealing with this stuff. Yes, I, I would agree. Um, uh, you know, we are going to be very factual matter of fact, because we know all the ramifications. We know, uh, what code situations are like. We know what other decisions we would have to make if they were revived from a code. I mean, you know, um, we had to make the decision to withdraw on my mother um, because we weren't there when she initially got intubated and was in the ICU. Um, are you, are you bringing that up because you wouldn't have wanted that to happen? Well, just that, you know, we didn't have our, our decision making our thought process at the time was you know, we, we, we looked at the numbers uh, at this hospital in Georgia and we knew mom's history and we were just like, this is not a survivable situation. There is no point in, you know, continuing to flog the situation. Sure. Uh, she wouldn't want that. So we made the decision to stop, you know, dad, who was not medical, 
took a lot more, you know, conversations, me and my sister, uh, to sort of get him to, you know, see that this was the end. And do you remember how you did that? Like, did you use medical terms and, and jargon or was it more of a, I, I don't know. What, what yeah, would, I don't even it, know what the other side of the coin would be in that case, since you're both doctors. Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, my father not being medical, most, you know, the vast majority of patients and their families are not medical. You have to put it in a language that they can understand without, you know, giving them the idea that they're stupid or not smart. Right. I mean, that's part of the, uh, the goal. You've got to treat them with some respect as well. So it's much more of a, you know, if we, you know, the, the pulmonary critical care doc has said that she doesn't think that mom's extubatable, you know, mom has, she was very, very large and had no muscle tone and was severely deconditioned after several other chronic illnesses were taking their toll and we completely agreed. She just didn't have the metabolic drive uh, or capability to stay off of a ventilator. Mm -hmm. We knew she wouldn't going to, she wasn't going to want a tracheostomy or anything like that. So, uh, you know, that's, that's how we put it with dad. Uh, you know, again, we can do these things. We can put a trach in her, um, but, uh, she is probably not going to be very happy about that. So and this could be for your dad or it could be just for when you're at work, but what are some of the tactics that you use to try to close the gap in the non-medical population? Like something that I try with sometimes success and sometimes it seems to just fall on deaf ears. It's just simple motivational interviewing, like reciting whatever the chronic comorbidities were plus the acute ones and then asking kind of what that means to the family members. And I get a varied response. Sometimes it just people will change the subject, which to me is avoidance. And sometimes they'll take a deep breath and say, Oh, I, I guess this is kind of the end. Right. And so I'm just curious what, what kind of tactics you use to bridge that gap. So again, I try to be very honest and forthright, and I usually focus on the acute things that have decompensated and that are not likely to be recoverable. Um, so you keep it pretty much medically focused. Yes, I, I think so. Um, but I, you know, I, I will talk about. Uh, you know, age is a factor. Physical condition is a factor. Um, looking at these things, I, I don't think they have the uh, ability to fight all of this off and pull through. Um, so that's, you know, the acute things plus the my assessment of for lack of a better term, the physical specimen, do I think this, you know, person has the strength, the muscle tone, the nutritional status, the, the ability to get through this. What about uh, the reframing of what would the patient want? Uh, I, I, that's usually the next part of it. 
Um, you know, I give them my assessment and then I will ask frequently, you know, have you all ever had these kinds of conversations? Have you, you know, has the patient ever discussed what they would ultimately want in these types of situations? Um, and, you know, if those are, if those answers are no, we've never talked about anything like that, then, you know, we might talk about uh, what might happen if they don't respond to treatment. And, you know, these are some things that we need to make some decisions about, i.e., do you want to go through a code? Do you want to get intubated? Do you think your loved one would want these things? Right. Gotcha. Yeah. It's never an easy conversation. No, not at all. What do you do? I mean, we've talked about fishing and hunting, but I mean, after that heavy <laughs> conversation we just had, I'm thinking, what other outlets do you have away from the hospital? Um, so the big thing I have gotten into in the last five to seven years, honestly, is yard work. Hmm. Um, I grew up just absolutely hating that kind of thing. But as I have gotten older, uh, I have found it as an outlet. Um, and as my, uh, hospital frustrations sometimes have grown, uh, particularly through COVID followed by the, uh, great resignation and everything else that the last few years have brought. Uh, when you do a yard project, you generally get it the way you want it and you get a sense of completeness and a sense of satisfaction, um, that sometimes you just don't get at work these days. Uh, as you know, uh, the patients have only gotten sicker. The, the outcomes have gotten uh, harder to obtain. Lengths of stay are up. Um, it, it's just a much harder, harder work environment than it was when I first started being a hospitalist. You said that length of stay is up, which I don't know if I necessarily realized outside of the fact that there's just less discharge options. But in the same vein, our are bounce backs higher too? So it, it depends on the disease process and depends on the organization. You know, there's the uh, all cause 30 day readmit rate for traditional Medicare. And then there's whatever other metrics the Medicare Advantage and commercial payers might hold you to. Um, I, I think for the most part, if I remember correctly, the data says the bounce back rate overall is decreasing because hospitals are doing their best to make sure things are optimized at the time of discharge, i.e., do you have your meds? Do you have the right meds? Do you know how to use your meds? Uh, what are you going to do when you get home? You know, spending much more time in the discharge process. Um, well, and not, that, that would also be why length of stay could be up too, right? Well, I think the length of stay, at least in my facility is up because our infrastructure has not, um, really grown with the number of beds in a proportionate manner. And I think with, COVID and the great resignation, 
that just really became a huge fissure. Uh, I believe right now, in all honesty, I have one Echo Tech for 685 beds is what I heard a couple of days ago right now. Wow. Yeah. And if you can't get stuff done. Wild. Yes. And there really are much fewer discharge options uh, available. Um, So, you know, if you if the patients are sicker, which they definitely are, if you can't get stuff done to get answers or, uh, you know, schedule OR time or cath lab time or whatever it is you need to get done, and then you don't have any place for them to go, um, they're in your house longer. And of course, some places are hurt much worse than others. <laughs> I think before COVID, our length of stay was you know, right around five days. And, you know, we've been running around six for the last, I think we're below six now, but we're pretty close to six. If you could change one, maybe three factors in healthcare to improve the next decade of the United States healthcare system, what would those things be? Oh, good grief. Let's see. Well, the first thing would be to, uh, fire all the insurance companies and make them go away. Um, so, and I'm not so saying, Medicare for all. Well, no, that's what I wanted to clarify. I'm not saying single payer. I, I don't want someone to think I'm talking about socialized medicine, but the health insurance companies take a lot of money out of the system, and right. the patients don't get anything for that expenditure. The current era that we have. They're only going to be beholden to you for for an average of four years, give or take, right? So, yeah, and this is during your working time. So let's just call it twenty to sixty. And in general, most people are healthy, active, blah blah blah. So you're paying into these private pay systems when you're essentially healthy. Then when you're sixty-five, you go to Medicare. But Medicare has received none of that payment that and that you've been giving for the last 40 years. And then you're extracting all of these resources when you need them because of just aging and acquiring illnesses along the way. So the, he, the way that he spun it was like, well, why don't we just get rid of that and just keep everyone's payments the same and then just put it into a single payer. And then the system has benefited from that. And then there's something for you when you're 65 and older, which makes sense to me. Yes. I I don't disagree. I just think you have to be careful about, you know, relating single payer. Most people automatically assume you mean socialized medicine, and that's not really what we're after. We're after getting the resources to the people who need it, which is not the insurance companies. I mean, United Healthcare is experiencing record profits right and 60 percent of tennessee hospitals for 2022 are in the red it doesn't serve patients so whatever the the fix is it needs to be funneling money back into some sort of safety net i don't i mean clearly there's some aversiveness to calling it socialized medicine but i i'm i'm over that like we just need to get people the care that they need I completely agree. Um, one of the things I like to do when I'm giving a lecture about uh, healthcare business and 
talking to students and residents about future jobs and things like this is I will say, okay, everybody sit back, close your eyes, take a deep breath and imagine a world with no humana united <laughs> shields etna and go down the list and take a deep breath and everybody's like wow i'm like yeah um because you know those things those those entities are takers they are not givers well and honestly that's you don't realize it in the moment of training but that's the best part of training is because you're pretty well shielded from the payer yes. aspect Yes, you don't worry about any of that stuff until you're an attending. Residency yeah. is about medicine, and that's probably best. <laughs> it, it is. It is. I don't. I don't think trainees should be burdened with that at all. Uh, I, yeah, you got to learn the medicine first, and then let let's not blow up your frustration level <laughs> while you're trying to form your practice habits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's not let you know how gruesome and and inefficient the entire system is let's just get you through this three to seven year period <laughs> yes yes absolutely yeah so okay so that's number one do you have others um i would like people to have a better more realistic understanding of what medicine can and cannot do mm-hmm I think there are a lot of myths perpetuated by TV, movies, social media. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, everybody died at home. Now everybody brings them to the hospital in the hopes that you can eke out, you know, another week, another month, uh, or that they can be fixed, period. And that's just not uh, very realistic. And I think if people understood better the limitations of what we can and can't do and just the impacts of natural aging and homeostasis. I think, you know, we might do a better job of concentrating on quality of life at the end of life, as opposed to uh, throwing all these things at them. Uh, what's, what's the roadmap? How do we get the zeitgeist there? You know, I, I think, the evolution of palliative care services is a very good thing, but they seem to be primarily isolated to the inpatient world right now. So I think we need to move palliative care conversations and ideas probably to the outpatient setting uh, in the primary care networks and in some of the subspecialty offices you know, to paint a realistic picture, you know, gee, Mr. Smith, your FEV1 is, you know, 25% of predicted. You're already on four liters of chronic oxygen. Your serum bicarb is almost 40. You know, we need to talk about whether or not you really want to go on a ventilator and we need to talk about what you want to happen, uh, you know, at the end of your life, which based on these numbers doesn't look particularly rosy. So, yeah, I, I have, there's like a decent outpatient palliative service where I am right now. 
Um, and that can come in the form as like case management as a liaison to palliative and hospice or just straight up outpatient hospice. So um, I think you're right that that needs to be grown and it should be a focus for healthcare systems across the country. I think the problem is, you know, the over credentialization of everything, like, does it, somebody really need a fellowship in palliative care to practice palliative care? Probably not, but are the systems going to hire internal medicine, family medicine that aren't fellowship trained for a, for a role like that? Like they should, but I, I don't know what the politics are going to dictate in terms of limiting care, because I guess those same systems would argue, well, we need those internal medicine, family medicine docs to be primary care docs, which is a whole nother system issue that doesn't benefit anybody. That's why no one wants to practice primary care at this point. So uh, it's just, well, it, yeah, it's, it's, it only gets harder <laughs> for them. I mean, for sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I like both of those ideas. I think, you know, eliminating as many, I mean, even if, even if we just had, if we kept all the payers, but they actually all had to play by the same rules, like that would make things so much simpler. Like all these different games everyone has to play. It well, it, it, it's not just games. It's the constant evolution of the games. It's who moved my cheese. Once you figure out to get the, how to get the patients what they need and to extract the reimbursement you are due and that they do everything to delay, they then change the rules. Uh, and you know, that's their modus operandi. Um, they've got to keep their profits up and, uh, you know, my experience over the last, you know, close to 30 years now is when you have profits and patients, profits always win. Well, and what, what about, I mean, I know this wouldn't be a simple fix, but it's simple in theory and it's simple in this conversation, but what if all insurance companies just had to be nonprofits. Um, I, I, you know, that would be a step. I don't know if that's the complete answer. And I tell you why, because nonprofits are frequently under scrutiny and criticism for what they pay their administrative staffs. Right. Uh, and, and all the new buildings that show up. Exactly. And, yeah. and do we need this new cafeteria extension and why is every room getting uh, a fragrance mister along with a <laughs> 42 inch flat screen? Um, you know, uh, so. Yeah, it's not a point taken. No, no, it's not. But maybe it would be a start. Right. All right. So some central payer and an extension of the palliative care system do you have one more in you or or is that about it yeah really good so the the other thing i would like to see is i would like to see medicine move towards prevention as opposed to just treatment many other countries do a much better job about uh, making sure things are taken care of before they ever start, i.e. exercise, don't smoke, don't drink. Let me check your cholesterol. Let me get all your screening things done. Um, our medical system 
focuses and emphasizes treating the acutely ill, right? Right. We focus on let's put the stent in the blocked artery as opposed to let's make sure that artery never gets blocked in the first place. Right. Um, so I would like to see some of that move. I mean, and I'm just as guilty. I mean, I'll be honest. One of the reasons why I'm a hospitalist is I like sick, acute patients. I, I did not enjoy the primary care world of checking cholesterol levels and making sure you got your colonoscopy and counseling you about your smoking and your exercise. Um, so I'm just as guilty, but from a, you know, holistic systemic thing, that's what we need to focus more on. And I think the only way to do that is what you already alluded to. You have to equalize the reimbursement between primary care providers and specialists. Um, because if you go to medical school, which is astronomically priced and you have a lot of loans, uh, you tend to feel the pressure to specialize, to take care of those things. Right. Right. And it's just, I mean, that's why I went to medical school was because I had this, you know, at the time it wasn't a pipe dream. I just didn't know any better. I was a kid, but the, the reason I wanted to be a doctor was to have a clinic like that emphasized exercise and lifestyle interventions to keep people healthy. And I still have this kind of fantasy of, you know, once my student loans are settled up, maybe I can have some type of small clinic that focuses on lifestyle intervention, but I just don't know about making ends meet in that model just because of the way things are set up. Like you said, it's a reactive system that it, it, let's say I had 3000 patients and none of them had chronic disease because of some protocol that we came up with on an individualized basis. Well, I wouldn't get paid for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it would be fantastic from a, from a social standpoint, those would be 3000 healthy people who could go about their lives and, you know, not have to worry about some of these things, which would be tremendous. But uh, yeah, that's not the way the system works. Yeah. It's truly frustrating. And I think that frustration is growing not only with physicians, but with patients as well. I, I don't know what, I, I don't know what's going to break and I don't know what it's going to force, but there's going to be something new in the next five years. There has to be. Well, I, I would like to think that things will get fixed, but I will also say the older I get, the more pessimistic I get because you watch our elected leaders just kick stuff down the road. And I, I may have said this before, but I've really come to the conclusion that the opposite of progress is Congress. Um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I have little faith in them to enact meaningful change. I think Obamacare had a lot of positive things in it. It also had some negative things in it. Uh, I still think we can do a lot better. Definitely. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. When you had your kids, did that change the way that you thought about your own life? And, and not like just like, uh, I have to support these kids, but in terms of like 
preventing your own death and managing your mortality and then managing your expectations and realizing that their mortality is now a concern of yours too. Yeah. Uh, I, I think so. I think, you know, through at least my experience through pregnancy, Hey, I'm, I'm going to have a child. This is going to be great. You know, I'm excited, blah, blah, blah. And then the reality hits right after birth and you're holding it and you're going, Oh, uh, I, I better get my act together. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that forced me to look more at things like my health, life insurance. How do I make sure, you know, this new bundle of joy has everything and that I'm there to enjoy it. So, yeah, I think absolutely it changes your perspective because suddenly not, are you not only responsible for yourself and your spouse or a significant other, but you know, now here's another completely at this point, innocent, unaware, uh, person whom you need to make sure has everything they need. We talk about imposter syndrome a lot in medicine, but does did that come up with, in terms of being a father too? You know, I, in all honesty, it does not come up in my mind with my kids. I don't know why, I guess I, again, I'm such a, a realist and a pragmatist that, you know, this is the way I see things here, child. This is what I think you should do about it this way. And, and so, no, uh, I still have, you know, if you don't have a little bit of imposter syndrome as a physician, when you're dealing with patients, mm -hmm. then you might be a little bit psychotic. You might uh, be Dr. Death. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you may have heard me say this before, but, you know, I still get butterflies every time I go see a new patient. And the day that doesn't happen, that's probably the day I need to hang up my stethoscope and walk away. For uh, me, that happens every discharge day. Is, huh. is the patient actually ready? What am I missing? This is my last chance. Oh, God. <laughs> You know, it, that's a, that's an interesting thought. Um, I do not have that at discharge. I have that at the time of admission. Maybe I don't have that at discharge because, as I've told you, uh, discharge starts at the moment of admission. It, it starts the moment you first see that patient because you got to figure all these things out. Um, and, you know, we've talked about that crystal ball that you did not get issued in medical school or residency, but you have to develop of, okay, well, I'm going to do these treatments and it could go this way or it could go that way. And I've got to prepare for both uh, yeah. possible outcomes. So. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I did pick that up from you and JJ. Um, as soon as you admit someone, what's the dispo plan? So. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so critical uh, to make sure everything is tidied up so that, you know, they don't bounce back. Um, yeah. You know. What's the biggest loss you've experienced if you are willing to share? Uh, you mean death or just setback or personal experience or uh, either one? I'm just trying to, you know, get an understanding of like what felt the most intense. It, it could be a death. It could have been a rejection from school. 
a pet buying anything. Anything that would cause grief. So I, I was not real happy when I figured out in my PhD program that this was not for me. Mm. Though coming up with the alternative of going to medical school was the only obvious choice. So that, you know, that didn't last long. I, I guess the biggest thing was probably when I went to fellowship like you did and my program had completely disintegrated between the time I interviewed and the time I matriculated. And it became very obvious to me that I was not going to get the training that I needed or thought was appropriate uh, to then come back to UT and be a pulmonary critical care doc on the teaching service, which was always the goal. Right. Um, that was really, really hard. And that was obviously a terrible conversation with the spouse. Um, so uh, that was, you know, it worked out fine, but in those six months while, you know, I was trying to learn something in this place where things had not gone the way I had hoped, uh, right. it was pretty, it was pretty trying. Yeah. It's definitely a big disappointment. It feels like a huge, a huge loss in the moment. Um, but then, like you said, things turn around and you figure it out and you move on, but it definitely hurts when it's happening. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to keep going forward. Um, e even though, uh, it seems sometimes, uh, you know, insurmountable, uh, things generally work out. Yeah. When, when you die, do you think there's more or do you think you're a worm eating dust? Yeah. I, again, being a realist and a pragmatist, I look at that as I'm worm food. <laughs> um, you know, when, when you die, they ought to give you what you need, right? Uh, a sump pump for the coffin, a nightlight, bug repellent, uh, you know. I, Groundhog trap. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if there is something after great, but I find that there are so many thousands of different ideas of what that is. I've never been able to reconcile that into one thing as a pragmatist or realist. So I don't either. I, and I don't, you know, uh, castigate anybody who has it all figured out and they're going to this place or that place, or they're going to be reincarnated or whatever. Great. Um, I hope it all works out for you. Uh, but, uh, I just, I, I'm not sure that that happens. <laughs> no, we've covered a lot. You've told us a lot about you and how you've gotten to the practices and thoughts and your daily life in a lot of different ways. Is there anything else that you were thinking about leading up to this conversation that you wanted to talk about? No, I think we, I think you hit all the high points and drug everything out that I would want to talk about. So I even got to talk about getting rid of the insurance companies. You know, that's one of my favorite subjects. I, I wasn't yeah. acutely aware of that, but I think it's something that, <laughs> that a lot of us think about and, and wish would happen or at least major reform in some way. 
But. Yeah, I mean, it, this whole system is supposed to be for the patients. And there are times I look at it and I think the system is for the system. And that's that's not good. Definitely agree. Well, on that note, the contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium. And nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Thank you for listening.